This is the Health, Heal and Thrive podcast and I'm your host, Tracy McBee. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Health, Heal, Thrive podcast and it's so great you're here. Thank you for being such a supporter of my podcast and for listening. I appreciate it if you do comment, like, subscribe and share so we can get the hope, the healing and the opportunity for people to get access to information to help them thrive in their life. Today, I'm actually sharing the audio of a webinar that I did during the week on weight loss. It was called Weight Loss, The Truth and the Lies. And I had people show up live and I sort of talked to the truths and the lies around weight loss. So I thought it might be helpful for me to share that on here. So I have put the audio on here for you to listen to. I hope you enjoy it. It's almost Christmas. I'll try and pop on for one other episode before Christmas. But if I don't manage to get there, I wish you all a wonderful Christmas and stay safe, be kind, be present. And remember that these times are available to you anytime that you wish. You know, I say to my clients, that we put a lot of pressure on one day when really we've got 364 other days to make them magical, to spread love, to give and be kind. So don't save it for one day. Work on doing it every day that you can. I really wanted to put this together tonight because coming up to the end of the year, you know, a lot of us kind of get thinking about what we want for the following year. It's a I guess a lovely opportunity to reflect on what we've achieved, where we like to go and weight loss tends to come into it. And my issue with weight loss is I want people to work off accurate information. I think for most of us, the information that we have isn't accurate. Uh, it certainly wasn't for me uh, when I turned 40 as a personal trainer. That's me on the left in the wedding dress. That was my second marriage, the day of my second marriage. I was 18 kilos heavier than I am now. But really, I was unhealthy and I didn't know at that point, you know, I had pre-diabetes and fatty liver and I was what is coined insulin resistance, but I had this insulin resistant, but I didn't know. It wasn't long after that, that I did find out. Picture on the right was last year when I was 49, but I'm now 50 and, um, you know, there is so much has changed between those two photos. It's been an incredible 10-year journey, pre-diabetic fatty liver, alcohol and sugar dependent, codependent, and really an innocent victim of my life at 40 compared to 50 now where I'm an owner of my life. I've taken responsibility, changed what I can, and I've unlearned, I've relearned, I've done the work, and now I have the incredible job of sharing information and helping others do that as well. So I hope tonight I can share some information. Some of it you may already know, some of it might be new. But just a little disclaimer, it is informational purposes only. Please obviously see a doctor or your healthcare provider if you are wanting to change your lifestyle, which uh, if you are on the fence about it, if it seems too hard, if you're unsure, I hope tonight will clear a little bit up around that for you. So how will this masterclass work? I obviously can't cover everything. This is a very big topic. And what I've tried to do is really put together what I consider to be the biggest misunderstandings and to share what the actual truth is behind that. Um, what I would say to you is what we tend to do as human beings is we stick with a strategy and we stay with a strategy. And even if it's not working, we tend not to change it. And I get it because I used to do that too. But I want you to see that that is something that isn't very helpful. If what you're currently doing isn't working, it's not a matter of going harder. Often what it is, is a matter of shifting direction totally. And, you know, at 40, that's what it was for me. Low fat, healthy whole grains, excessive exercise. And, it, you know, it wasn't working for me. So I had to totally change what I was doing. And I'm so grateful that I found this information that I'm sharing with you tonight. There's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to lose weight. You know, we live in a world now where a lot of people are made to feel kind of guilty for doing that. I think that is ridiculous. If you are wanting to lose weight, that's fantastic. What you have to really become aware of is your reason why. And it's about health, really. That's what you want. You know, weight gain, weight loss absolutely can be an indicator of your health, but it's not an indicator of your worth. 
So if you have your worth connected to your weight, then there is work for you to do. And I would recommend that you do do that. If you jump on the scales and your day is dictated by that number, there is work for you to do. So your weight does not equal your worth, but your weight can be an indicator of how metabolically well or not you are and obviously how well your body is able to access energy. And I want people to be able to access energy, to feel vibrant and live an abundant life. And for, to do that, we do need to be metabolically well. Weight often is a messenger. So really, if we can look at it like that, what is it trying to tell us? Weight gain is stored energy. Why is our body storing excess energy for a rainy day? Why is it not able to access it? Why we are not able to remain lean? I think that is what we can do. We can look at weight gain or weight loss as a messenger. It's absolutely telling us something. And I also want to give you a little bit of a trick. Now, this is something that all my clients and all the people in my group will know about. This is the considering cup. And it has the beautiful owl on the back, who is our wisdom. And now the considering cup is important because what a lot of people don't realize is that our minds are belief blind. And it tends to not be interested in challenging what you believe. And what it does is just quickly dismiss information that doesn't already align with what you already know. And it'll do that in a number of ways. It might discredit me. It might say things like, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. It might just completely dismiss the information that you hear. And you see it all the time. If you look on social media, you see it happening all the time. But it's an innocent misunderstanding that actually keeps us from accessing information that might be able to help us. So what I get people to do is to grab a cup. You don't have to get one that has considering cup on it, but it can be just a metaphorical cup and get a piece of paper. And anything I say tonight that you might feel challenged by, perhaps write it down. Don't follow your brain that wants to dismiss it straight away because it's deciding for you based on what you currently believe. Remain open. Remain neutral. Write it down. Put it in there. And then maybe investigate it in a, in a couple of days. Come back to it and see if there's anything in there for you. It is how our minds work. They all work like that. But if you want to free yourself to challenge what you believe and to embrace something new, you have to understand, you know, how the mind works and how it doesn't want you to change and, and step beyond it by bringing that conscious mind into deciding what information you want to take on and what you don't. Because essentially this is your journey, right? So I can't tell you what to do. No one can tell you what to do. You are responsible. It is your journey. But innocently our minds, if it doesn't already align with what we already believe, it tends to dismiss it. And a great example of that is actually, you know, a client of mine when I was a personal trainer a couple of years before I turned 40 actually told me about sugar. She mentioned David Gillespie's book, Sweet Poison, and I instantly dismissed it. How ridiculous. We need sugar for energy. How could I possibly train without it? It was, it was just not on my radar. And I didn't realize or understand at that point that I had a mind that was belief blind. But now I know, and that's one of the things I'd like to share with you tonight. So I'm going to talk about is being overweight dangerous for our health? I'm going to go through some of the lies and what is true. Obviously, I've only chosen a couple of big ones. There are probably many out there, but let's start with a few big ones. I'm going to talk about what I've seen in my own personal life and in my coaching life now as the most common barriers to us really changing and stepping into what is going to work for us. And then I'm going to give you my top tips. So is being overweight dangerous for our health? Well, it does depend. So weight gain in certain areas absolutely is dangerous for your health. Now, it really is characterized by hard belly fat. I did a workshop recently where Dr. Z talked about how if you want to stand against a wall and your tummy touches the wall first, then there's probably some issue with metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance. So hard belly fat, you see it in men a lot. That is a sign that there is insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. And also fat around your organs is dangerous and that's called subcutaneous fat. So that can happen with or without external fat. So we know there are people walking around who are very thin on the outside, but they're actually very fat in the middle because their fat is being stored around their organs. There is no doubt that is extremely dangerous for your health and that absolutely puts you at risk. So this type of fat is very dangerous, as I said, and does put you at risk. Now, fat around our bottom and thighs is actually not dangerous. We may not like it, 
but it can be actually protective, especially for women who are menopausal, postmenopausal. And that's generally why we tend to store a little bit of extra fat there as we age. There is research coming out now to show that it is actually protective. So make sure, you know, you just get really realistic around what is dangerous. You really do want to avoid fat in your organs like fatty liver. Fatty liver is generally the canary in the coal mine. And what a lot of doctors will do is kind of go, oh, well, just watch it. There isn't much you can do about it. Maybe lower your fat intake. I don't know why, because fat actually doesn't cause fat in the liver and fat doesn't make you fat. But it is actually an early sign that along with um, high blood pressure, quite an early sign that things are starting to go awry and your body is uh, struggling to make the energy it needs for you. As I said, Weight gain or weight loss is a messenger. So what is it telling you and are you listening? There is no point in ignoring what's going on and, you know, and just thinking that you're not disciplined enough or how it happens as you get older. Absolutely not how it happens as you get older. It may be very common, but it isn't very normal. So what are the messengers that the weight gain is telling you? So metabolic syndrome, some of you I'm sure will have heard about metabolic syndrome. It's classified as a number of factors, including excess abdominal weight, which I said, high triglyceride levels. So if you go to a GP, that will check your triglyceride levels. And uh, generally anything over 1, 1.5 is something that you would want to address. Elevated glucose levels, elevated insulin levels, which if you go to a low-carb GP, they will check. Your insulin levels are going to go awry way before your blood glucose levels are. So sometimes even 10 to 15 years before. So it is a really good idea to get your insulin levels checked just to see if you are on the path to insulin resistance, which of course causes things like type 2 diabetes and all the modern diseases. I'm going to talk about that later. High blood pressure, as I said. And there is a measure you can get measured called your HbA1c, which is actually a three-month average of how sugar-damaged your cells are. So that actually is a really clear indicator how close you are to type 2 diabetes. So metabolic syndrome in and of itself does increase your health risk and weight may or may not be a factor. So we know people who are lean or I know people who are lean who are actually insulin resistant. A very well-known example of that is Professor Tim Noakes, who was very lean, who was a marathon runner and was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. I think it's important to understand that there are nuances to it. It's not just the fat that you see that is the problem. It's the hard belly fat and it's definitely the fat around your organs. So what we want to do is reverse that because it is a sign that perhaps our lifestyle isn't helping our body access the energy we need. What are some of the lies? Let's talk about what I see as the biggest lie out there. And really, it honestly... Keeping on believing this lie is one of the biggest barriers to embracing, you know, what is actually rightfully yours, which is metabolic health. So that picture kind of says it all to me, that piece of salmon and a sugary donut that's full of harmful ingredients, both are 300 calories. Now, does that tell you anything about health, weight gain, weight loss? Absolutely not. The calories in, calories out myth and just eat less, move more is just probably the most ridiculous piece of health advice that we've embraced since the 70s. And we are seeing the consequence of all of that. So let's look in a little bit more detail. Of course, it is not all about calories in, calories out. So let's think about calories instead of, you know, what is it? It's actually just energy. So that's all a calorie is, it's energy. And, you know, we, we absolutely can't deny the fact that calories are a factor. They are energy that we're taking in. And, you know, that's the first law of thermodynamics that tell us about that. But what it doesn't tell us is what happens, you know, to that energy and what type of energy are we taking in. It's very much, a, it's just such a superficial piece of advice that is actually really, really unhelpful. So years of experience, yours and mine, will tell us that the calories in, calories out theory just does not work. So if we reduce our caloric intake, which we've all done and I've done, of course, many times up until I was 40, we may lose weight. But then what happens is our body wakes up to that change and starts to slow down our metabolism as well. And it reduces our energy output. 
So we feel really tired, we feel really lethargic. And of course, the side consequence of restricting food is that we think about it all day long and all we do is want to think about our next meal and starving. So if you think about it, if you reduce your calories to around 1,500 calories a day, but you keep functioning at 800 calories a day, you will eventually die. So your body is actually looking after you and keeping you alive by reducing your metabolic rate. And over time, unfortunately, that can permanently be lowered. The sooner that we make the switch to the way we eat and how we fuel our body, the, the better it will be. They've even done studies on you know, Biggest Loser contestants over like five years. I mean, that's just such a terrible type of show anyway. It's purely entertainment, but it's torture for these people. But some of them actually never regain their base metabolic rate. It remains very low, which means over time. So they'll regain the weight, but it'll just be virtually impossible to lose it again. So as I said, we feel hungry all the time. We feel cold. We feel weak. And we absolutely tend to lose muscle mass if we're restricting calories and, and we're just looking at it in terms of calories overall because what has the highest amount of calories is fat and, and fat and protein are the most nutrient-dense foods that we need to eat. So what happens when we don't eat enough of the nutrients that our body needs, what does it do? It takes it from our muscles and our bones. And this is a long-term thing. Over time, what does it do? It wastes away. And it is a problem with our elderly. They don't eat enough protein and a lot of them just unfortunately slowly waste away. So it is absolutely not about the calories. So repeat after me. Don't stay stuck in a strategy that isn't working. You don't need to try harder at the same strategy. You need a new one and you need one that works. So, you know, it's just important to really say that to yourself often because it's so innocent. We all do it. I did it. And it takes a huge amount of courage to unlearn and relearn something. But if what you're doing isn't working, then you need to try something new. The truth is that energy storage, which is what weight gain is, or energy usage, which is weight loss, is actually controlled by our hormones. And these two quotes from Dr. David Johnson, who was a neurologist in Queensland, his quotes are, losing weight doesn't seem to be working for me, so now I'm going to concentrate on getting taller. Sounds ridiculous when you read that, but that's pretty much what we're trying to do by trying to manipulate our weight. Instead of focusing on balancing our hormones, and then, of course, our body being amazingly clever, tends to take care of the rest ourselves. Obviously, we have a history. It's going to depend very much on our genetics. It's going to depend on our lifestyle factors. It's going to depend on the dieting that we've done and possibly any damage that's been done up to the point that we understand this and make the changes. But manipulating your hormones is a superpower. Let me just tell you, if you can understand insulin particularly and you can eat in a way that keeps insulin happy, you will likely avoid the plethora of chronic diseases that are about today. And if you walk into any emergency hospital, most of what is in there is lifestyle disease, which is actually preventable if people have access to this information. Hormones regulate every process in our body, including our weight. So when we are overweight, our set weight is too high due to hormonal imbalance. So what do we have to address? Not the calories, but the hormone imbalance. An amazing that we can do this through food. Food isn't the only way, and I'm going to, towards the end, get to other factors that definitely are at play. But by far, for most people, the number one thing is food. And if we can get the food right, everything else will take care of itself. So insulin, I'm sure a lot of you watching understand insulin, I can, but because this is being recorded and hopefully it will land, into some eyes of some people that uh, don't understand this, but insulin is a hormone and um, it is actually, it does a lot of things, but primarily it is a fat storage hormone. If we don't produce insulin, so it's producing the pancreas, we would die. Without it, we absolutely would have died of starvation during the winter months. So it's, uh, insulin works well by during summer, you know, our tribal ancestors would have eaten, had access to more food, particularly, you know, things like berries and seasonal fruits. 
not like the fruits today, but very limited fruits. Plus they probably would have been able to hunt more. They would have had access to more animal foods. Now that then would have been stored as best as it can. Insulin would have stored a lot of that away as energy for when winter came and they didn't have access to food. Now, obviously that is a problem in the modern world today because we have access to food 24 seven and most of it is processed, addictive, nutritionally poor and just far too easy to become addicted to and access and we don't get these feasts and famine times anymore so insulin is just being asked to work over time to cleave your body of excess blood sugar so excess blood sugar over one teaspoon one teaspoon which is about four and a half to five grams sugar or glucose is the balance that's homeostasis that's what your body wants to try and keep it at most of the time now when you eat when you eat anything except for pure fat but when you eat any food particularly carbohydrates or sugars that spikes insulin way way higher than that and then so basically the insulin's job is to cleave all that excess blood sugar out of your blood because it's toxic to the body if it's not down. So we have to understand it's very important. So before the invention of insulin, when we were able to inject, so people who were diagnosed or people who got type 1 diabetes actually died. So but insulin in and of itself is in, in vitally important. We have to appreciate it, but we need to manage it and understand it. That's all. And at the moment, we are basically being told to eat in a way that just is totally disrespectful to insulin and obviously causing all these extra problems for us. And it is the king hormones. So I, you know, when I teach this, I talk about all hail the king. It is the king. And what we know is that if that's not working properly, there is a domino effect. And there will be a lot of other hormones that are dysregulated, whether that's leptin and ghrelin, which are your hunger and fullness hormones, cortisol. There is also evidence to show that our sex hormones are affected as well by insulin. So we know that people who are insulin sensitive, so who have insulin working properly, who are metabolically well going into menopause, tend to have a lot less issues than people who are not. So there's a reason why it is the king hormone. But it is really, really important, obviously, that we understand it and manage it and show it the respect that it deserves. So when we eat carbohydrates, now I've got on the bottom there, what is a carb? Do you know? Now, I think this is something most people don't understand. I think people understand sugar as a problem and kind of probably get that, you know, eating too much sugar isn't that good over the longer term, but they don't understand carbohydrates and carbohydrates are anything that is turned to glucose in the blood and that would be anything like bread rice cereal pasta grains quinoa many many things that really essentially aren't protein or a healthy fat so when we eat these foods what happens is with the spike of hormone of the hormone insulin it turns off your body's ability to, to burn fat. And I really highlighted that because that was a big light bulb moment for me when I was understanding this. So when insulin is high, your body has no ability to access its stored energy. So that is why generally insulin resistance comes with weight gain. Not always, obviously. Well, actually, it probably does come with weight gain always. It's just you don't necessarily see it in some body types because it's stored inside. And actually, I think that people that have their stored energy on the outside, they're probably a little bit luckier because they're more likely to do something about it. I think there's such a perception that lean people are healthy and that is not correct. And I think that people who are lean need to, to you know, make sure that they're obviously not insulin resistant as well. So as I said, it does that because the excess sugar, which is glucose in the blood, is uh, toxic. It's made of glucose and fructose, and the fructose can only be metabolized in the liver. Everything else can go into muscles. The problem is there's only a very limited storage capacity of carbohydrate in the muscle, and the storage form of that is called glycogen. And once that's full, guess where it goes? Into the fat cells. So it's, there, it's really trying to help you. It's storing it there for a rainy day. But just in the modern world today, we don't tend to have a rainy day. So insulin also disrupts the hunger and movement center in the brain. That's also really important to understand. So the normal feedback mechanisms that help you feel full 
and help your brain to access energy actually are disrupted as well. And over time, of course, it can start with something as really benign or what we think is benign as brain fog. And most people are actually walking around with a level of brain fog. They're not even aware uh, that that's, you know, that they have brain fog. I wasn't. I just kind of felt really tired and crappy all the time. And then when it lifted, I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. You know, my brain could feel as sharp as it could when it was actually being able to access the right amount of energy. So, you know, it's really, really important. We're talking about weight loss here, but we're talking about health and it's not just health. You know, your brain is not disconnected with your body. It's very much a part of your body. It's going to show up. Poor health is going to show up somewhere in your body or your brain. And really insulin resistance is something that we all really want to avoid. So it's really important to understand food. I mean, how much do we understand it? I know the average person, when I move outside my bubble, people that I work with have very little you know, understanding of what food does and what it's made of. And I'm talking real food here, really. I mean, processed food isn't food. It's frankenfood. It's fake food. It's made in a factory. It's not made of anything real. So I'm talking about real food here. But when you do understand this stuff, it actually will help inform you to make different choices. It will help you with your choices. So the function of carbs, fats, and proteins, I think this is really, really important to understand. That is the combination of all the food that we eat. They have some element of each of those three. Obviously, there are varying degrees. Some will be higher carb, higher fat, higher protein. But I want to just help you understand the function of these. And uh, I have to credit Professor Tim Noakes for teaching me this. So the function of protein, and again, this is very simplistic and it is actually far more complex than this, but there is a lot that protein needs to do. It's the number one macronutrient that people don't get enough of generally. And unfortunately, it's only going to get worse, particularly as we're kind of marketed to with a lot of plant-based proteins. I think plant-based protein is rubbish. I don't, I think you can argue technically there is some element of protein in plants, but the problem is the metabolism of those and it doesn't, it's not easy for the body to access it. Plus there is usually a, a lot of offset with damage that goes on for our body to access it. So I'm not going to go into it in this presentation, but it's important to understand when I'm talking about protein, I'm talking about animal source protein. I actually, you know, I've done work with Dr. Georgia Ease and all the study that I've done. And I deeply believe that an animal free diet is a suboptimal diet. And over time we do get unwell. Anyway, back to function of proteins. It is a source of energy. So our body can use protein to make glucose where it's needed. So for example, if we had to run for the bus or if our, there was parts of our brain that needed some glucose, our body can make it through a process called gluconeogenesis. So it is a source of energy. It helps with synthesizing enzymes and antibodies. It maintains acid balance. It repairs and maintain, maintains tissues hair, skin, eyes, muscles, organs, hormone production, transport of molecules, and it's a messenger. So I said there is probably hundreds and hundreds more, but essentially what I want you to take away from that is that it's really important. What about fat? Well, fat, as we know, has been demonized since the 70s. Um, and essentially the long story of that, if you read uh, Nina Teicholt's book, The Big Fat Surprise, you will see it's been a political scam where fat became the enemy. So the sugar industry paid off a lot of universities and people, and it's a long convoluted political story, but really, really worth understanding what happened. Fat, and I'm talking about animal fat or plant-based fats that are from something real. So an olive, you can squeeze a coconut, you can get off the tree, obviously lard, tallow, uh, butter, ghee. I'm not talking about vegetable oils, which are the evidence is so solid that they are toxic to the body and they will, in fact, cause weight gain as well. These beautiful animal fats, they are a source of energy as well. They help your body to make ketones. Um, what most people don't know, which is really important to understand, is the vitamins in these, A, D, E and K, are essential for our brain. Our brain needs these beautiful vitamins 
to function for us and to show up for us for longevity. Fat is involved in cells. It's involved in hormone production as well. It's a chemical messenger. It helps with lowering inflammation, fever and blood clotting. Preserves the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. A little important, I think, that's fat. I think we all agree that we need fat. It's pretty important. What about carbs? Basically, there is one function of carbohydrates, and that is that it is a source of energy. That is it. That is it. I love showing this information because it's like, what? how on earth then have we been told to consume so many carbohydrates? Um, you know, if you think about that stupid food pyramid, it is absolutely ridiculous how we've been convinced to eat so many carbs. So carbs, anything that is converted to glucose within the blood. That is a carbohydrate and the only role is energy. Now, sometimes people argue with me, but what about micronutrients? Well, yes, there are some whole food carbs that do have micronutrients in them. However, the protein and fat from animal source foods have all of those in it as well. So you have to balance it out between the fact that you may be getting some micronutrients uh, but you're also packing a punch with the sugar as well. Very little nutrition comes from carbohydrates. And I'm particularly talking about cereals, grains, rice, pasta, bread. There is no nutrition in those things unless they've been artificially added. And even then there's an argument about whether the body can absorb that or not. So really, if you understand that, to me, that just makes a lot more sense as to what you should have on your plate. Um, and what you should be prioritizing on your plate. You can't understand insulin and the role of macronutrients and not understand insulin resistance. And these are three of the doctors who are probably my heroes, Peter Buchner, Tim Noakes, Ben Bickman. I have been lucky enough, well, I haven't met Tim and, and Ben, but I've interviewed them. And obviously Peter, I know quite well. And these men, I'm just so forever grateful to for the information that they share, but they all will tell you that insulin resistance is problematic. Um, and it is the number one factor that we need to be addressing. And type two diabetes, which is one of the end results of insulin resistance, some cancers, heart disease, dementia, but it is a problem. And as Ben Bickman says that I believe insulin resistance is the single most chronic common health disorder in the world. It will increase the risk of every chronic disease and there literally is a tsunami of chronic disease coming the way of the world so while I can't change the political landscape you probably can't either we can only share what we can we absolutely can take control and to make the changes ourselves and show others what's possible from what we do so you know, obviously diet is the number one, but there are other lifestyle factors, a lack of the right type of exercise. I'm going to talk about exercise in a little bit. Chronic stress is a problem. Lack of sleep, all of those can also cause uh, insulin resistance. And I put a question mark next to genetics because I think while, you know, I'm not a doctor and I'm not going to say genetics isn't a factor, I would say that what we know is, um, and I learned this from Dr. Pran Yoganathan, that when we are in our mum's tummy, we are impacted by what our mother eats. And as the generations and the diet has worsened over time, then actually babies are now being born with a lower bucket, if you like, of tolerance to carbohydrates and their guts have been affected and a lot of the time when there's insulin resistance in the mother, the baby is swimming in a lot of insulin as well. Plus then, of course, there's habits that are passed on from parent to another. Now, none of this is a judgment. It is just looking at, well, what, are, what do we need to address to fix this? Well, it's a big issue. Obviously, so much can be fixed with changing lifestyle, but of course, there's many barriers to that. Symptoms of insulin resistance sluggishness, weakness, we shouldn't feel sluggish. We are designed with the metabolism and with metabolic health when we have it to have enough energy to get through our days. If you're tired in your day, if you don't sleep well, if you have to wake up to eat, if you have to wake in the night, if, or if you do wake up in the night, poor concentration, fogginess, irritability, which we get really tired, we're not really fun to be around. That blood sugar roller coaster, hangries, hangry is not a, a mar, you don't need a Mars bar when you're hangry. I mean, being hangry is a sign of poorly controlled 
blood sugar, which when you are metabolically well, you don't feel hangry. I can't remember the last time I felt hangry, probably, you know, quite a few years ago. Weight gain, as I said, puffy skin is a sign because of sodium retention. So when insulin is high, our body tends to retain a lot of water and with that, a lot of salt. PCOS is a sign of insulin resistance, but the number one sign for men is erectile dysfunction. So any men watching, as Dr. Z said at the workshop, you want to wake up in the morning with the excitement, if you like. And the fact that if men aren't waking up with that in the morning and they're having trouble with that, that is a massive sign that there is a problem with insulin resistance. Dark skin patches, skin tags, high blood pressure, fatty liver. Um, and so much of this, we just put down to normal and a normal part of aging. It is absolutely not a normal part of aging. The first one is the calories that started out as calories in, calories out. Hopefully I've shown you just how pathetic and just how wrong that advice is and how unhelpful it is just to think that weight loss is all about reducing your calories. I mean, it does, does your body such a discredit. It's so disrespectful to the way that your incredible body is made. And we need to just turn that around and respect the hormones and respect the way our body is always designed to keep us alive. And if we do that, then I, you know, for most people, depending on how far along the path they are, the body will show some signs of improvement. So the second myth I want to address about weight loss in particular is you just need to exercise more because, hey, eat less, move more, and that's going to get you what you want. Well, no, unfortunately, it's not that easy, but abs are definitely made in the kitchen. Now, I'm not saying that exercise isn't important because I'm going to show you that it absolutely is. And it's so important that I do some form of it every single day. But I don't do it to maintain my weight because as Prof Noak says, if you need to exercise to keep your weight down, your diet is wrong. Now, how much are we living in this misunderstanding? I don't know about you, but I go out every weekend and I see runners who are overweight and I see cyclists who are overweight. So it's not that they don't want to be healthy. Of course they do, but they have missed the diet part. If you get the diet part right first, the exercise is just an incredible added benefit for your mental health and obviously for keeping you from avoiding losing muscle because movement absolutely does matter, but it's much more about the type of movement that we do. Generally, you know, it, it just makes you hungry. I mean, if you're calorie restricting and you're still eating a low fat, high carbohydrate diet and you throw exercise into that, your body, as we've all been there, I've been there. I mean, your body is just starving. So we fix the diet. We get our, our body functioning on the right energy and we throw in movement after that. So with my clients, I rarely get them to start with movement unless they're already doing some. But if you shift your diet and you change that around, your body takes a little bit of time to adjust. Obviously, that's very individual. But if we do the diet first, then we actually start feeling a lot more energy to do the other stuff as opposed to it being a slog. But I actually think the best type of movement is, number one is maintaining muscle. So over 40, obviously, or maybe it's 35, our, our muscle mass tends to decline. I do think it comes down to how much protein we eat as well. If we're not eating enough protein, it probably happens sooner than that. Um, but we want to do things to keep our, our muscles strong. Um, and we want to do things to exercise our heart. So we do want to do a little bit of cardio. There's a lot of debate about long distance stuff. Um, and I'm not going to get into that now. If it works for you, great. But I think you have to make sure that you are fueling your body on fat if you want to do the long distance stuff. The biggest benefit of movement is mental health. And we have to understand that your brain is totally wired to reward you for moving. And that's why when we do do some movement, we go for a walk, we go out in nature, we ride, we ride a bike, we go for a run, we do some weights, we never regret it. We feel great afterwards because it's actually essential for us to do some sort of movement, but not for weight loss. And oh my gosh, I just wish I could wave a magic wand and help all these young people, particularly, or even age is irrelevant, I guess. It's just whether you've come across this information or not. People who believe it's just about eating less and moving more. I've just got to go harder. I've just got to go stronger, but no, we don't. I just want to touch a little bit on our two energy systems, because again, this is information that I didn't know until I was 41, 42. 
Um, and a lot of people don't understand this either. And uh, they hear the word ketosis or ketones and freak out. And if you don't understand it, get your considering cup. It's not ketoacidosis. It's got nothing to do with that at all. It's giving your body access to incredible energy. But basically, we have to understand that our dominant energy system is going to dictate how much we eat and most likely how we are going to feel. We're carb burners and we're predominantly fueled by glucose. Because we have a very small storage capacity of that fuel, this is why we go every couple of hours, we tend to get hungry and we have to eat because our blood sugar drops rapidly. The body freaks out, sends out hunger signals, and we have to eat again to right our blood sugar. Um, but of course, we just end up going on another, on another roller coaster. And then the long-term effect is that we're not getting the nutrients we need. So the hunger is still going to be there. But if we're eating predominantly fat and protein, we're going to be feeling very different and we're going to be using a different energy source. So ketones can be made from fat uh, in our body. And if we eat predominantly protein and fat, our body's going to do that for us if we give it the time to do that. But really, if you think about, well, what am I putting in my mouth most? If I'm putting in carbohydrates, that's my fuel system. If I'm eating protein and fat, then it's probably a combination of both, but it'll be mostly fat. That'll be my fuel system. My fat cells will open up. It's like our insulin will drop. The key will open up the cells and I'll be flooded with lots of energy, which is what happened to me that I was able to use and weight just kind of went. And that's all a function of our energy systems. And that starts with what we put in our mouth. So just going back to what I said before, don't stay stuck in a strategy that isn't working. Ketosis is our natural state. If you look up Dr. Matt Phillips, he is a neurologist and he has a lot of information, speaks very, very highly about the fact that our brains prefer ketones. And Dr. Georgia Ede is, of course, a nutritional psychiatrist, and she also gets her patients onto a ketogenic diet, and a lot of them end up either coming off medications or reducing their medic psychiatric medications. So because most of us are carb burners, because we're eating what we've been told, we've all done the right thing, we've, you know, we've eaten the dietary guidelines, we eat plenty of healthy whole grains, we do all that. We actually have to do the work to build the metabolic machinery to become a fat burner. And then if we're lucky, so if we're young enough and if we don't have a, a lot of insulin resistant damage, then uh, we can become what's called metabolically flexible. And we can then sort of go in and out of the two states. And really our body kind of takes care of that. As long as we're focused on whole foods, mostly protein and fat, with a little bit of seasonal carbohydrates, whole carbohydrates, if you are not already insulin resistant type two diabetic, you can manage that. And then your body will just become metabolically flexible. And I say there, you'll become this magical unicorn because that's kind of what it feels like to be fueled on ketones. But it does, depending on where you are and your current state of metabolic health, it can take a little while to get there. But just remember that it can take a little while for that to happen but obviously that it's about managing our and respecting our hormone insulin so we don't want to give it too much work to do we want it to not lock down our fat our energy and our fat cells we want it to be fully operational and so they can come in and out we can think about carbs as like kindling on the fire so basically there's not much storage capacity our body burns through them really quickly and there's actually a lot of oxidative damage that after we eat a high carbohydrate meal has to happen afterwards. So think of it like, yeah, kindling, you got to keep putting stuff on it. And you also have to, it's also the cheap fuel. So there is a lot of pollution, if you like. So think of that as oxidative stress. And that is an issue for our brain in particular. So it does not like being under oxidative stress. So the opposite of that is fat, which is like logs. It's like a slow burning log. There's not a lot of smoke. It burns beautifully. It burns slowly. We don't become a victim of these blood sugar roller coasters. Our energy is, is sustained. And of course, our body is able to access the huge amount of stored energy on our body. So even in the leanest of persons, it's, I, can't, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, 
but our ability to access energy is phenomenal from fat when we've built that machinery. So if you are eating predominantly carbohydrates and you want to become fat adapted, you want to be able to build this machinery, then the focus would be for you to start switching over from lower the carbs and increase the proteins and the fat. And if you um, are fearing fat, if you still don't understand that fat's good for you, I mean, I've shown you that fat is essential. And there's been some long-term trials that have been done to show the damage that is done, particularly to women who have low fat, who eat low fat diets. It's just, it's not good. So we need to make sure that we do get enough fat in our body and get access to those beautiful vitamins. But fat is an interesting lever that we can pull. So if we would lower it just a little bit and still keep our protein high, you know, this is what, you know, bodybuilders will do when they want to lean out. Now I'm not saying there's any bodybuilders here, but it is a lever that we can pull. Personally, I find keeping my fat high works for me because it helps my brain work at its best. And I really want my brain to be working for me. Let me then move on to the common barriers. Of course, there are many. And what would be the number one common barrier would be the modern world that we live in. So it's not going to change. Um, we can't sit back and wait for randomized control trials, of which there are many already anyway, but we can't sit back and wait for our politicians to suddenly flip the pyramid or for, I don't know, I don't know what we're waiting for. We have to, when we find this information, we have to do this ourselves. And what that does is, is actually put us in a position that can be actually very uncomfortable. And I work a lot around this with my clients who potentially have to start eating differently to their partner, their families. And that brings up a lot of uncomfortable moments and issues. Now, not the topic of this, but it is what I do with the work I do with my clients, either in my group or individual there is no barrier that can't stop you. What I want you to see around barriers is they are just things that can be overcome. They are just uh, issues that require you to find an answer for and to move around. They are not things that have to stop you. So please don't let the barriers stop you. Get creative, get curious and find a way around them or get the help you need to move around them because your long-term health is dependent upon it. It is really, really, really important. These are the big ones I've seen. There are probably more, but these are the big ones. So knowledge is a barrier, right? Not even knowing is what most people don't even have is the knowledge. That's the number one. People need to get their considering cup. They need to unlearn what they believe and relearn. But keep doing that in the face of government and many doctors still not even willing to look at this themselves. They are a victim to their own belief blind mind. However, there are now thankfully in the 10 years I've been in this space, many, many doctors that now embrace this. And of course, if you would like me to recommend a doctor for you, I can do that. You can go to a website called Low Carb Down Under. They have a resources list and Australia and New Zealand, they have um, doctors that you can get in touch with. And a lot of them you can do on telehealth now. But I highly recommend that you go to one of those doctors who understands lifestyle, who understands blood test markers and understands the impact of diet on our body, which a lot of doctors unfortunately don't. The next barrier after knowledge is I also work with a lot of people who have the knowledge. They've been listening to podcasts, reading books, they've been showing up to seminars, they've done courses, they have all the knowledge, but they don't know how to apply it. So unapplied knowledge is not worth anything. To learn how to take the knowledge and then apply it into how we make our choices in our day. So your life is made up of a cumulative effect of all the choices that you make in every day you are gifted with. And if we can't use the knowledge to change the choices that we make, then there's something missing there. Habits are part of this application of new knowledge because habits are tend to get in the way. They are very difficult to break. They take time. They require patience. They require the work. And then, of course, we have to recreate new habits that are much more about aligning where you want to go and taking you towards the life that you want with your lifestyle. But that includes sugar and alcohol dependency. 
sugar and alcohol, the two things that are accepted in society. Um, I haven't even put cigarettes there because I'm assuming most of you don't smoke, but if you are a smoker, smoking is there as well. But generally sugar and alcohol, sugar being the gateway drug, we give kids sugar at a very young age. Alcohol uh, tends to then follow and they are highly addictive to the brain. And I'm talking obviously from personal experience here, giving up sugar and alcohol was very difficult for me to do. And it took me down a path of really, I guess, healing and learning a lot of the stuff that I know now and what I help other people with. So I had the knowledge, but I just didn't know how to stop those habits and break those habits. So if that is you, then I, I recommend that you get the help you need to break those habits. Not taking responsibility for your own health is a barrier because it's not your fault that you are where you are. And that is really important that you accept that. You've done the best you can with the information and the level of awareness that you have. It's not your fault, but your health is your responsibility. It is nobody else's responsibility. And once you have new information, it's your job to take it into your life and to make the changes that you want to make. Nobody is going to do it for you. Do not rely on your doctor. Do not rely on the government. It is your job to be responsible for your health. And when you actually embrace that, you will free yourself to actually make so many more changes than when we sit back. I, I talk about that a lot as being a victim or an owner. And I said at the start, when I was 40, I was a victim and I was innocent. I didn't know. I just didn't know any other way to do it. And maybe that's you. I use the word victim and not in a judgmental way at all, but it's just that we innocently sit back and we wait for someone to come and do it for us. Now, even my clients, and I say this to my group, I'm not going to do it for you. I can't do it for you. Nobody can. Stop searching for the quick fix. Stop searching for the magic bullet. Stop searching for someone to give you a program and tell you what to do because that does nothing. The minute you stop that, you are going to go back to how you were doing it before if you do not address the habits and do not apply the new knowledge. That is your responsibility. But you know what? You are incredible. You're courageous. You can absolutely do this. And I would encourage you to join a community of like-minded people to help you on the journey because it is not easy. And it is certainly not easy to do this on your own, particularly if you don't have the support of family around you. I said this one, but not having patience and believing in the quick fix, it doesn't exist. It does not exist, the quick fix. Getting your hormones balanced is going to take some time depending on the damage that they're in. You can't undo a lifetime of habits over a week. You just can't. You know, really the job is to embrace your health, do the best you can in every day to make the choices that you can to take you towards the health that you want. And then get on with you living your life. You don't have to obsess so much about food. You need to be organized, but you just embrace your life and start creating the life that you want. That's the life coaching me element coming. Um, but we can do that when we find patience with ourselves and just trust the process and we trust our body. Really, our job is just to manage what goes in our mouth and what goes in our brain, and then our body will take care of itself. And particularly if we focus on the health. The health gains, not so much the weight loss, particularly understanding that really the most, what's the most dangerous fat is the fat in your organs. And that's what your body is going to use first. Are you going to see that on the scales? No. Are you going to see it on your body? Probably not. But it is the most dangerous fat that needs to be removed. And if you have fat in your organs, it is going to be taken first once you start respecting your hormones and eating in a way that is going to keep that balanced. Not maintaining or building muscle, a lack of self-worth, lack of self-belief, fear of failure, lack of knowing who you really are. I won't go into that now, but this is all the work I do in my group. Big barriers to making the changes for us. If we don't think that we're worth it, we're not gonna do it no matter how much knowledge we have. A lack of confidence to be a beginner and to build the mastery. You know, we have to, be a beginner. We have to allow ourselves to make mistakes. We have to not expect everything to be perfect. We just got to drop all of that. Um, it's very unhelpful for us if we don't. Poor gut health, dopamine dysregulation, poor sleep, and a dysregulated nervous system, which I'm going to touch on on the next slide as well. 
all of these things are very real. A lot of them not spoken about enough, but are very real barriers to weight loss and optimal health. Just a little bit about the nervous system. Again, it's not something that's talked about enough, but it is a big focus in my group, The Art of Thriving. A dysregulated nervous system or stress is the number one barrier to fat adaption. So we can get the diet right, but if we don't address the internal weather that we're sitting in, we probably won't lose the weight and we'll still find ourselves being insulin resistant because when we have a stress response, we are being primed to fight, flight or freeze. And we are pumped through, our body is pumped with adrenaline and cortisol And what happens is it releases glucose into the blood for us to go and run. And uh, if we don't do that, because we're just sitting in a stress response, we're sitting in anxiety or in a world that's worrying, stressing, thinking about everything other than the present moment that we're in, then of course, then that just remains in our blood and insulin then has to come out and clean it up. So it is really, really important. If you get access to a, a CGM, which is a continual glucose monitor, you will get to see in real time. If you have a stress response, if you have a stressful event, what happens to your blood sugar? So the number one barrier, I would say, as apart from food, diet, the next one is stress. And they do need to be addressed hand in hand. All you have to do with that one is notice what happens when you wake up in the morning. Do you wake up in the morning dreading the day? And does your mind get overcome with all the things that you have to do? Or do you wake up in the morning grateful for your day and look forward to all the things you are going to do that is going to enrich your life? They are two very big differences. And one of them will tell you, well, they'll both tell you a lot about the state of your inner world. So just quickly getting to my tips. My number one tip is to get help. I floundered around for years, not knowing what I was doing really. Oh, I did try, I did get help, but I just tried to, figure a lot of it out myself and I think that you can have this shortened for you if you do get the help and the support that you need it's so so important it can really just help light you light your path up and just help with all of those barriers my next tip quickly is just don't expect to do it all at once tend to start Monday we tend to start on January 1 we tend to start on our birthday and then what what we do is we want to change everything at once you're setting yourself up to fail just do one thing at a time don't have to change everything overnight and in fact I would recommend that you don't do that if it's the diet that needs addressing then focus on reducing the carbohydrates The first thing I would do is get your first meal right. That first meal is setting you up for either a blood sugar roller coaster or for your body to have a, you know, for insulin to be happy. So focus on that, maybe that first meal, focus on removing processed foods, the soft drinks. Only you know your big red flags are, but if you just take it step by step, you'll absolutely get there. Keep building and maintaining muscle, but get the diet right first, then you can bring that in. If it's stress that is your issue, then look to regulate your nervous system and to deal with the traumas and the reactive and habitual responses that you're living in in each day. And that can happen by becoming a lot more aware of your breathing, a lot more present and a lot more mindful of where your mind is. Is it taking you out of the present moment or are you present to what's actually in front of you right now? And then my final tip is have a low-carb GP that you can see just to help manage all of these things for you. You don't have to see this GP regularly once every six months or something like that just for a checkup, but it is really, really important that you do have access to someone who can support you. That is what I had. There was a lot there. I know there's a lot there. And gee, I could have said a whole lot more, obviously. It is a very big topic. I've shown you, hopefully, through understanding what, the function of fat, carbs, and protein is in the body. And then, of course, the fact that we're told to eat such a huge amount of carbohydrates. It's not just the sugars. It is the carbohydrate. So rice, pasta, bread, all of that is sugar to the body. Mark Sisson said, I actually think I put it in my first book, that no different metabolically to sit down to a bowl of Skittles as it is to a bowl of rice. 
it is the same response in the body with your sugar. So it is really important to recognize that. And in terms of resources, well, you have um, access now, 10 years on from when I started, where there was very, very few resources now, but you have access to many groups on Facebook, support groups, obviously my group, The Art of Thriving. Uh, there's many doctors like Dr. Abby Charlton and Lu Lucy Burns. There's many people that do have support groups, a lot of them free as well. But find your community. It's very difficult to try and change your lifestyle if you are staying in the same place, if you are you know, hanging out, doing the same thing, the, drinking a lot and eating a lot of sugars and the people around you are still doing that. You do need to find extra support and new support to help you make the changes that you want to make for you.